but uh, before uh, Mina uh, do her presentation, uh, I want to take the opportunity to introduce uh, two members uh, to the division. One is Morgan, uh, who is our new uh, fellowship uh, coordinator and also division's uh, administrative coordinator. Uh, Morgan, can you show your face to everyone? Hello. Hi. Welcome. <laughs> All right. Welcome. And Lisa uh, would get you onboarding well to know what's going on in the division. And I hope Pharaoh will get to see your face uh, to know whom to go to for fellowship issue. I'm sure Sarah would continue to stay on for a while to help you uh, onboarding. We have a very exciting fellowship program, although we uh, need a few more <laughs> people to join. Uh, I think Lisa Antis is, uh, Dr. Antis is, is doing the medical student teaching today. I don't know if she's, uh, you know, she's locked on or not, but anyway. So the next person is Amanda, who is our new APP joining the Janet. Amanda, can you show your face? Hi there, hello. Hi, so, well, okay. <laughs> I guess you don't have a camera. Uh, so is my video not showing? Oh, I yeah. Can see you. Okay. I can see you. Okay. I can see you. Yeah. The rest of us can see you. I don't know what how long is seeing, but it's uh, all right. Okay. So, so Amanda, as, uh, some of you have known, uh, have seen her. She is starting Team B. It's been with us for the past weeks. So, how's it going for you for the past week? So far, so good. The first week was good, and everybody has been really lovely and helpful. and. I'm just trying to take in as much as I can. All right. Okay. So uh, uh, welcome aboard. You know, Thank and you. we. Uh, I guess you would uh, work in Team B for probably for a month, and then uh, uh, switch with Janet to Team A, and we really excited you joining the division. We uh, expect you to grow, and then uh, uh, working with the division. Uh, Thank you. All right. Okay. So, Mina, now it's your turn. Can everyone hear me just fine? Yeah, I do. Yep. So. I do. Mm -hmm. All right. Well, I'm going to talk about uh, Alport and specifically X-linked Alport in women's. Um, March is uh, Women's uh, History Month, and today is also International Women's Day, and the talk just happened to be on the appropriate date and time. So I thought it would be a good review of literature because I've myself had a few Alport patients, female. And uh, when I did some literature search, I found some new interesting things, which I thought that should be shared with everyone. Okay, I have no conflict of interest. So the objectives of today's talk would be to review the literature on X-linked Alport syndrome, like I said, that understand what are the genotypic and phenotypic correlations and how are they different in X-linked Alport in males versus females. Indications of uh, testing, uh, what type of testing, genetic testing, who to test, how to test, and when to test. 
and uh, review some consensus guidelines for genetic diagnosis and follow-up of these patients and some clinical trials that are going on right now. I'm going to start with the case. So this is the case that I um, saw in the clinic. Uh, so she was a 29-year-old Caucasian female uh, with no past medical history herself, uh, was referred for hematuria evaluation. She just saw her PCP for routine annual physical and was found to have hematuria. Her 62-year-old dad had a history of Alport. He was diagnosed in 20s, was dialysis dependent since mid-40s. Uh, she had a very strong family history of Alport. Her paternal uncle had Alport, was on dialysis and passed away. She had just gotten married a few months ago when she saw me in the clinic and she wanted to have kids and she was worried about her family history and she came to me. Um, so this is just, I've put it in a questions format. Uh, her blood pressure, as all of us can see, was definitely high. Um, so this is just a question that what will be the next step and we'll get the answers towards the end of the talk. And this is another case and um, she, in this case, she was a 27-year-old female, um, and I did not uh, see this particular female personally. This was a case that was Dr. Thomas helped me out with. Uh, she was seen in the general nephrology clinic in sometime in 2019 for evaluation of hematuria in the context of, again, a family history of Alport, known family history. She had a much longer history of hematuria. She said that she, was, she has had hematuria for as long as she can remember. Uh, she said that when she was five, her dad had been diagnosed with Alport and um, developed ESRD by the time he reached 30 and has had two transplants. Um, and as you can see, the family history was strongly positive for Alports and multiple family members. Um, those are the vitals. And we'll see, we'll talk later what we, what we ended up doing. So historically, I just thought that where did the name Alport came from? I'm not sure how many of us actually uh, know that. I, at least I did not know that. So um, in 1902, uh, Leonard Guthrie was a physician in UK. He presented a family with a British family with multiple family members with hematuria. And the disease was mainly inherited from the mother's side. So he did not know what to call it because it did not fit the classical picture of any glomerular nephritis. So he called it idiopathic congenital hereditary and fam familial hematuria. In 1924, Dr. Arthur Cecil Alport um, joined that hospital and he started studying the same British family. And there were 16 people in three generations that were affected with nephritis, hematuria, high blood pressure, albuminuria, and died at a young age. But he found that deafness was a consistent feature in almost all cases. He also noted that there was a, a difference in the clinical course of males versus females. Males tend to develop uh, albuminuria, uh, hypertension, and deafness um, at an early age and did not survive because obviously we didn't have dialysis at that point of time, whereas females lived uh, had deafness and hematuria develop later in the age and they live to old age is what he um, suggested at that time. In March 1927, he published these findings in British Medical Journal. And after that, there were no further similar reported cases until 1951, when another study was reported, similarly describing a large family with multiple affected family members. And then multiple cases started to pour in. Um, and then at that point of time, they did not really know what to call this particular disease. 
And uh, given the significant contributions of Dr. Alport, it was decided to name, call this disease, Alport disease. And this is how he looked. Okay, so what do we know about Alport syndrome? It's actually the second most common monogenic cause of renal failure uh, all over the world right now after autosomal dominant polycystic kidney disease and almost 60,000 are known to be affected in US till date. And this is coming, this data is coming from the National Organization for Rare Diseases of Alport syndrome. There's no known geographic or ethnic predisposition um, and it's considered rare in women or it was considered rare in women. And I've, um, and that's the whole point of this talk that is it actually rare or is it just misdiagnosed or just not diagnosed correctly? Um, and the important thing is that it's the disease presents in a very clinically heterogeneous form in women as noted by Dr. Alport. And there's a wide variability of disease severity across the age group. That's the reason that females typically go underdiagnosed or uh, until later in life. Um, and Alport in general is known to cause 3%, 0.2% of adults with ESRD and 3% of children with ESRD. And that is the best data we have, although it's um, not actually uh, truly representative of the disease. So inheritance pattern, it's the most common pattern is uh, X-linked disease in 65 to 80% of the cases and autosomal recessive in 15% in and dominant in probably 20 to 30% is, uh, I looked at multiple literature and at some places it says up to 20% and some says 20 to 30%. So I've just put 20 to 30%. It's also described as diagenic inheritance in which that, uh, which means that they have two mutations in call for A3, A4, or A5, either of the two in, in, in a three mutation. In up to 15% of the cases, there could not be a family history and the disease can happen de novo. So this is what a type four collagen looks like. Um, the type four collagen has actually six chains, alpha one to alpha six. The three chains will form a, a, a triple helix and uh, they will organize themselves. And if you can look over here, uh, the first triple helix is alpha two, alpha one, alpha one, alpha three, alpha four, three and five, and six, five and five. So each of these individual chains have like a non-collagenous domain and a carb carboxy terminal domain and an amino acid terminal domain. And they, uh, the alpha four, three and five occurs in kidneys, um, mainly in the glomerular basement membrane. Some articles also suggested that it's also found in tubular basement membrane. Outside of the kidneys, it's found in lung, testis, cochlea, and eye. Alpha one, the, the first chain, two, one, and one, and five, five, and six are actually the components, also form the component of the glomerular basement membrane, the skin, uh, smooth muscles, esophagus, kidney, and the Bowman's capsule, basically. So this is, I just thought it would be a good refresher to look at this picture. Um, this is where the purple color is, is what the, um, the collagen type four, uh, the glomerular basement membrane, the, pro, the triple helix form, formation is happening. And it is uh, between the lamina rara interna and the lamina rara externa. Um, and the lamina densa is, is where the glomerular basement membrane is concentrated. And it's being held by the 
laminins and the integrins. And this is the this is how it's it forms a part of the glomerular basement membrane. This is just a, a electron microscopy showing the normal glomerular basement membrane and how it's abnormally thin. And we'll talk about why it's called thin basement membrane lesion. Um, and this is a typical pattern which is seen in early onset Alport. Later in the disease, it's known to cause like the splitting and the laminated glomerular basement membrane, which is mainly the lamina densa um, structure uh, which we, that we saw in the previous slide. So how is X-linked Alport different in women and why is it different? Um, and why should we talk about it is because it's underdiagnosed in females, like we, we said, it could be uh, generation skipping or is it because of the lionization where uh, one of the X chromosomes in women undergoes random inactivation. Um, and also there are no proper screening guidelines and adult nephrology practices to screen uh, females, uh, female relatives of affected men. Um, it is also the natural history of this disease in women is poorly understood because of lack of uh, studies and lack of data for many, many years uh, since it was first reported in 1902. Um, mainly data is coming from hospital-based registries, which is saying that 30% of women with excellent will develop ESRD by the age of 60 and will require dialysis or transplant. Um, and uh, by the time they do reach age 60 and they end up on dialysis, uh, they have been, like I said, that misdiagnosed. They never undergo a biopsy or a genetic testing. And most of the times the disease is attributed to other factors like hypertension, preeclampsia, uh, or it, it can actually be, remain undiagnosed. So just to understand, this is a, a show, figure showing the inheritance pattern. Uh, the first image is the in a male with X-linked disease. So a male with X-linked disease will inherit the disease from mother in 85% of the cases, or in 15% cases, like we talked about, could be de novo mutations. And half of the affected male sisters and brothers and all his daughters will be affected. So he will basically pass on the disease to his daughters, but not to his sons. And B, um, this, is a, this is how a female with X-linked disease will pass on the disease to her offsprings. She'll inherit the disease from her father. She can inherit the disease from either the father. I don't, I'm not going to choose. Just get me something. I'm sorry. I'm not, I'm not muted. Muted. Here we go. Female will inherit can inherit the disease from either her father or mother. If she inherits the disease from her father, then all her sisters would also be affected. And if she inherits the disease from her mother, then half of the sisters and half the brothers are affected. And a affected woman will pass on uh, half of the disease to her sons, and half her daughters would be affected. So basically, an affected female will pass on the disease to her half her offsprings, males and females. And this is C is just to uh, give an idea about the autosomal recessive pattern. Uh, males and females are affected equally and with almost uh, equal severity and the disease often tends to skip a generation. 
Um, so, so the um, uh, Alport syndrome uh, classification was discussed in the 2015 Alport International Workshop on Alport syndrome and um, uh, unmet need was identified for a proper classification of Alport syndrome and a, a classification uh, task force was formed um, and they uh, discussed, they, they met again in 2018 and they gave a new classification of Alport syndrome. This new classification was expected to improve the prognosis of patients who were currently holding a diagnosis of thin basement membrane disease and they were not being followed because it was supposed to be a disease which was benign. Or uh, it was also uh, expected that uh, the appropriate classification uh, will lead to timely initiation of nephroprotective therapies in the form of ACE and ARB and will, will prolong their lifelong survival they're like, uh, reduce the risk of long-term ESRD. So this was a proposed reclassification. It classified the disease in terms of affected gene. Um, the call for A5 was the X-linked Alport syndrome and the males were hemizygous and the females were heterozygous. The call, call for A3 and A4 could have been inherited in an autosomal recessive pattern or a dominant pattern. And then the, the diagenic mutations that we were talking about that either, either of the two mutations happening in the same individual. It also gave an idea about uh, the estimated risk of ESRD. Uh, if you can look over here, almost 100, virtually 100% 100 of males with X-linked output will progress to estrogenal disease as compared to only 25% of female. And if they also identified the risk factors which will go through um, uh, in the future slides, the gross hematuria, the uh, hearing loss and protein urea, which were the risk factors in males were also identified to be the risk factor in female for risk of progression to ESRD. Um, it also, uh, the important thing was that it also included previously diagnosed patients with thin basement membrane disease or benign fem familial hematuria uh, into the autosomal dominant category. Um, and then um, they have also commented on the, the, the biopsy findings, the thickening and the lamellations that they saw in the different different uh, uh, types of classification, X-linked and autosomal recessive and autosomal dominant. Um, and then um, this was again, um, so if you see a patient of if you're suspecting somebody with Alport, how do you go about it, especially in females? So the females can have like a autosomal recessive disease, autosomal dominant disease, or an X-linked disease. And the important thing to differentiate between is the X-linked and um, X-linked Alport and autosomal recessive Alport, because they can present in a uh, similar fashion, uh, at least in, in the initial stages of life. And they found that in the family history, women are affected twice as often, but they usually have a less severe disease, which is what we already knew. Um, generation skipping can be seen uh, in, uh, in, in autosomal recessive disease will skip the generation in X-linked Alport syndrome, multiple family members from several generation uh, would, would be affected, but it can uh, skip the disease in unaffected, undiagnosed females. Hematuria was present in 95% of X-linked outport females, where, 
and proteinuria was common from early adulthood. The other important thing was also the, the uh, ocular findings. Almost 85% of females with outward res autosomal recessive outward would have a, a central fleck retinopathy, whereas only 30% of uh, excellent outward females would have that. Uh, peripheral retinopathy, although was found to be a more dominant feature in uh, women of uh, women with excellent uh, inheritance pattern. So this uh, was uh, X-linked Alport syndrome. Was, this was like one of the largest uh, studies looking at the natural history and the genotype-phenotype correlations in girls and women. It included 190s fa 195 families from Europe and it was uh, the study was called a European Community Alport Syndrome Concerted Action Study. Um, and they, um, the inclusion criteria of the study were family history of hematuria without, without progression or to ESRD, uh, the characteristic sensory neural hearing loss, ocular changes, and ultrastructural changes on the GBM. The two additional uh, criteria that they included was the diffuse esophageal leomyomatosis in, involving the tracheobronchial tree and the female genitalia, which is known to be associated with uh, X-linked outboard. Um, and they collected a data from total of 329 families. Um, and after the initial review, 195 families uh, with an identified call for A5 mutation and genetic testing were included in the study. So, uh, so the first, the interesting thing about the study was the age of diagnosis varied from one day to one day to 57 years. So these patients were followed quite closely from early onset of the disease or earlier in life. What they noted was that hematuria was present in 96% of girls or women at some point of time in their life, um, was actually detected before the age of two years in 13 patients in the study. 75% patients developed proteinuria during a course of follow-up and risk of ESRD uh, before the age of 40 years was 12% and uh, risk of deafness was 10% uh, at the age of 40. So it's quite possible that a female, if she's not having any sensory neural hearing loss symptoms, if she's never not been seen by a, a primary care provider, a UA has not been done, she can be missed until later in life. Um, so they followed up, uh, the follow-up data was available for two, two 88 females almost 51 women developed ESRD and 55% of them reached this before the age of 40 years. The youngest female who developed ESRD was at the age of 19 years. So this study is all like, it's still ongoing. At the date of the last exam, 34 patients or 12% of the patient had developed chronic kidney disease and 18% had reached ESRD. Of those who reached ESRD, of those 18% patients, 28% reached at ESRD early in life, like from the age of 19 to 30, and the youngest was 19, and 31% reached ESRD between the age of 31 to 40 years and 41 after the age of 40, 41 years. So what I'm trying to say here is that the 41% of patients with X-linked Alport are not reaching ESRD until later in life, until a median age of around 40 years. And if they've not had a previous follow-up or if they've not been diagnosed previously, it's quite possible that this 
ESRD and CKD could be attributed to something else. But they also saw that lenticonus, which is uh, the pathognomic of Alport syndrome was present only in three patients. Um, in some studies, it has, it has uh, shown to be associated with much more severe form of the disease. Um, of these three patients, only one developed ESRD at 24 years of age. The other two had normal renal function at 63 and 52 years of age, which again reinforces the fact that uh, the classical phenotypic features, which are um, predict uh, more aggressive and are diagnostic of Alport syndrome in males, uh, it's not diagnostic in females because it's very variable. So this is again a graph uh, showing uh, they compared the probability of hearing loss and the probability of reaching ESRD in males versus females. Um, if you look at this graph, almost 90% of males are reaching end-stage renal disease by the age of 40 years and are developing hearing loss by the age of 40 years. Almost, and in contrast to this, almost virtually all females have close to normal kidney function until they are like 30 or 40. That's when the risk starts to go up, which is again, really important. Um, and the risk of deafness was almost 90% in males and only 10% in girls and women. And after the age of 60, you can see that how the risk of ESRD progressively starts to go up um, in, the, in the female population. And uh, if the, the bottom most line uh, is all female, so they had a lot of patients that they lost to follow up. Uh, so they just basically, uh, whatever last data they had on this population, they, they made a separate curve out of it. And that's where it says that all females with, uh, which is N number 349 and the solid line is females that were, they, they followed up and they knew that what was their renal outcomes. And then they again looked at the possibility, probability of end-stage disease. Uh, comparing that to hearing loss and proteinuria, is early onset proteinuria or early onset hearing loss, does it mean that a female would have a much more aggressive course of disease later in life? And they, and they found that yes, the prob probability of ESRD was, was higher in those who developed hearing loss and females who developed hearing loss. And also the probability of ESRD was higher in those who developed proteinuria at any point of time in their life. Um, so they had also looked at particular mutations uh, in this particular study, and we'll talk about mutations in detail uh, a little bit further down, but what they uh, found was there was no correlation noted in the incidence of hearing loss across various mutations. So some mutations are uh, known to be more aggressive as compared to others, but this particular study did not find any correlation between the incidence of hearing loss and across the mutations. And they also did not find uh, that, also found that non-missense mutations, uh, which is uh, include all large deletions, insertions, splicite mutations, conferred a high risk of progression of ESRD later in life. So the key points from this study were that proteinuria is indicative of poor prognosis, risk of developing ESRD is higher in females with rather than without hearing loss. Lowest risk of progression is noted in those with missense mutations, and this is true 
this did not attain statistical significance, but this has been proven in various other studies, even in males. Ocular changes were noted in 15% of the population and they were mostly macular flex. They also noted that renal prognosis in women is unpredictable at, at an early age. Um, after age 60, almost 30% of females will develop ESRD. What, what the important thing in this study was that they lost almost one third of uh, patients to follow up and they assumed that this 30% number was likely an overestimation because they also assumed that people who were lost to follow up likely had a less severe disease. And that's the reason they didn't come for follow up or did not seek care. Um, and they did not find any correlation between diffuse lyomatosis and the severity of the disease. They also noted large intrafamilial heterogeneity and they attributed that to lionization um, and uh, they also said that this can uh, make it challenging to predict renal course in females, even within the same family. Okay. So this was another study that came out in November, 2020 uh, by uh, Mastrangelo and group. And this was a study based out of Milan. It was a prospective observational analysis of females with X-linked Alport syndrome and the girls and women were actually recruited from a pediatric nephrology outpatient clinic. And they had a mean follow of approximately 13 years. Um, it included mainly Caucasian population, except one patient, uh, except uh, one family that was a Chinese family. Um, and then what they did was they tried to do something very similar to see if patients with the missense mutations, uh, which is known to cause a mild form of disease, had a different, uh, um, risk of ESRD as compared to patients that have a non-missense mutation. And they divided those patients into group one and group two. And these were all patients who had a genetic diagnosis of call for A5 by, done by a genetic analysis at their institution. Um, so this were the inclusion and in exclusion criteria for the study. Um, basically female persistent glomerular hematuria, the classical uh, um, sensorineuring, hearing loss, family history, and uh, the exclusion criteria was the absence of microscopic hematuria treat, tested every three months on four consecutive occasions. If they had a negative, negative uh, microscopic hematuria, they were excluded from the study, or if they had uh, some sort of dysplastic kidneys or any congenital deformities of the kidneys or uh, any other associated systemic disease, they were excluded from the study. So it was interesting to see that they, and these patients were followed for a, followed up for like a good 13 years. Um, and their age at the last follow-up visit was approximately 25 years, pretty comparable in both the age groups. Uh, and I've rounded the important points, which says that the EGFR at the last follow-up was, was definitely lower in those with group two, which were the known to have a more serious mutation, severe form of mutations. And also more number of patients developed early onset proteinuria or some form of proteinuria in their lifetime in, of 13 years of follow-up of the study um, in, the, in the severe form of in group two. If you look at a uh, number of patients who developed ESRD or CKD was two, which was two in the severe form as compared to zero. And 
looking at this, the number of patients with deafness, there was no difference. It was not statistically significant, which again brings us to an interesting point that even if they do develop sensory neuron hearing loss or some sort of deafness early in life, it does not prognosticate what's, what pattern of disease or what will be their renal prognosis down the road. And none of the patients had any ocular abnormalities in the study. They also looked at um, the different groups of patients based on their biopsy findings and also if how at what age um, were the male members uh, in their family affected with ESRD, at what age did they develop ESRD. And again, if you see in group one and group two, um, both the groups had uh, uh, affected male relatives in group in group one, one of the patients had developed, uh, relative had developed ESRD at the age of 15. In group two, they had developed at age 16. Actually two patients developed, relatives had developed ESRD by the age of 16. And this second, sorry, table is interesting uh, because it again tells you that even if you were to do a kidney biopsy uh, for, a, for a patient and not do a genetic test, uh, it's quite possible that you might get a different biopsy finding depending on what time you decide to biopsy. Uh, early in the course of the disease, they are, uh, Alport syndrome females are known to have a, a glomerular basement membrane thinning. So if you were to biopsy them sooner, it's quite possible that they might be mislabeled as thin, thin basement membrane disease if we never do a genetic testing and that might, they might be labeled as that and they, they can continue to live with that diagnosis for 40 or 50 years. And then they develop renal failure and develop the classical signs and symptoms of outboard. But by then um, it's too late and uh, we have not started any nephroprotective therapies. Also, you can see the variability Almost most of the patients had lamellations, but you could see the, the glomerular basement membrane. Some patients had thickening of the basement membrane. Some patients had thinning of the basement membrane. Not everyone had the classical basket wave lesions. There was some had patchy distribution, like at some point, like at um, in some uh, certain parts of the kidney, there was a focal uh, thinning or there was like focal thickening, or it was just a discontinuous pattern or diffuse pattern. So the key points from this study was that the renal structure and the histological features, even if we do do a kidney biopsy, cannot help predict prognosis, probably cannot even give us a correct diagnosis. Uh, proteinuria was more common in those with severe mutations. Presence of, of diffuser focal features did not, does not appear to correlate with the type of mutations. Non-missense mutations led to a high risk of progression of CKD ESRD, which was very similar to what was noted in the previous study. And they also looked at females who had a diagenic mutations, uh, and they thought that, and they saw that they had a more severe phenotype with early onset hearing loss and um, ocular changes. This paper was published by uh, Dr. Judy Savage and her group uh, out of Australia, and they specifically looked at the ocular uh, features in X-linked uh, and females versus autosomal recessive inheritance, if it can help us come to a diagnosis sooner. What they found was that peripheral retinopathy, uh, peripheral retinopathy is more common um, in, um, in it, it is probably one of the commonest uh, 
uh, finding in women with X-linked outboard found in probably almost 50% of women with X-linked outboard, but you can also see it in almost 75% of females with outboard, like autosomal recessive outboard syndrome. Um, the one thing that was important was that the temporal retinal thinning, um, which was found in almost 90% of autosomal recessive pattern and only 30% of X-linked pattern. So, um, and then macular hole was not described and other maculopathies were also not described. And if you look, it's all, it's, it's a, it's hard to maybe perimacular fleck, which was found, which is what a very common finding that they found in the European group, 20% of the women had it, but also 75% of the autosomal recessive women have it. So it's not helping you come to a diagnosis like that. And then they saw that they, they looked at if there's any usefulness in doing routine ocular examinations uh, on these women. Uh, is it going to predict early onset renal failure? Is it going to help you identify a mode of inheritance? And uh, lenticonus uh, was, would help you distinguish between X-linked outboard and uh, autosomal recessive outboard and uh, the retinal thinning would not, and the giant macular hole uh, would also would also help you distinguish between uh, X-linked outboard and yep, yeah, because it has not been described in women with X-linked outboard syndrome, not yet. So. The third study uh, came out of Japan because till now we know that there's no ethnic or geographic predisposition to Alport syndrome. So this was a study that came out of uh, uh, Japan and they looked at uh, uh, 179 Japanese families from 2006 to 2015 with a genetically confirmed diagnosis of X-linked Alport syndrome. And the clinical and lab data was, were, were collected at the time of genetic analysis. And the reason that this was thought to be more accurate was because in Japan, they do routine urine analysis in schools. So if the females did have proteinuria, it would have been picked up sooner. Um, so this was uh, the type of mutation that they found in number of uh, cases and the number of families. So the most number of mutations that they found were the missense mutations, which is what we know that almost 40% of Alport syndrome, X-linked Alport are caused by missense mutations. And uh, 49 cases were uh, splicing site mutations and so on. And they also looked at the median age of diagnosis. So in this group, the median age of diagnosis was 24 years. Hematuria developed in almost 98% of the patient population, proteinuria developed in almost 73% of patient population. 12% of the patients developed ESRD and only 5.5% had hearing loss and 1.5% had any specific ocular changes that are uh, known to occur in Alport syndrome. So, um, sorry. so what they found was a, a something different from the other studies, they did not find uh, that a specific mutation type, uh, uh, like a non, a severe form of mutation uh, would make you reach to ESRD quicker than a missense mutation. Uh, they also found that there was no difference in renal prognosis on hearing loss, whether being present or absent. 
And they also noted that their uh, symptoms of hearing loss and specific ocular abnormalities were much lower than those reported in prior studies. So by now we know that almost hematuria and proteinuria are early onset and uh, consistent features of uh, women who are affected with X-linked Alport disease. And they also looked at the mutations and uh, this is another uh, study. I did not go into the much details of the study. This was done by uh, the Judy Savage group out of Australia again, and they found that several severe mutations uh, were associated with the younger age of onset at renal failure. Uh, if you had a severe mutation, your mean age of developing renal failure was 22.5 plus minus seven years as compared to those with a missense mutation. Um, and direct nonsense mutations uh, would lead to a renal failure at much younger age, 21.4 plus minus 6.4 as compared to the severe mutation. Um, and uh, they also confirmed the findings of the other two studies that renal failure occurred sooner with non-missense variants than the missense variants. And they had actually looked at this um, almost 754 uh, mutations um, and from 12 different genetic labs uh, across the country uh, by coming to the conclusion. So this is again a structure of the type four collagen, uh, like I had talked about, there are two non-collagenous domain. There's a carboxyterminous non-collagenous domain and a aminoterminous non-collagenous domain. And the, the collagenous domain itself is found of multiple repeats of glycine X and Y chains. And, and uh, based on this, I've just uh, put this image to like, just to give you an idea that missense mutations are on the aminoterminous domain lead to late onset renal failure and no ocular features as compared to the carboxyterminous domain where the missense mutation itself uh, can lead to early onset renal failure, corneal dystrophy, lenticonus, and central retinopathy. So what I'm trying to, uh, the point I'm trying to make here is that even if um, a missense mutation uh, can, can lead to a different renal course, depending on where the mutation is present, uh, which terminus the mutation is present, and the large arrangements, uh, deletions, and uh, splicing mutations are uh, indicate a much poorer prognosis. This was a very interesting study, came out of Columbia University Medical Center, uh, Groupman and the, um, Dr. Groupman and their whole group. And they looked at um, almost 3,315 patients, 3,300 patients with CKD who, um, and they did a genetic testing and they found that almost 30% of the patients uh, were found to have a call for A3, A4, A5 mutation that were previously like unknown. Out of these, uh, of the newly diagnosed call for A3, A4, A5 mutations, 62% had been either misdiagnosed or not even diagnosed as having Alport syndrome and thin-based membrane disease. And if you look at this number, the 24% of the patients uh, were diagnosed with PKD1, which previously did not, were found to have a new mutation or like a mutation who did not hold a diagnosis of PKD1. So this, this is really important that we are almost maybe missing 60% of patients. Um, and uh, what they also um, 
said that maybe some of these patients were either misclassified as FSGS or um, just because uh, there were some, the patients with call four mutations can also have some genes which are common in autosomal recessive form of FSGS. So that, I hope that by this time, I have convinced you that um, females will tend to present later in life, will have a very variable phenotypic course. Um, and if they are, uh, even if we do a biopsy, it's quite possible that uh, we, they might be misdiagnosed. So the, so the way to go is genetic testing. And the role of genetic testing, I've, I've uh, put up all these points as to identify the mode of inheritance, prognosticate the disease, uh, for early diagnosis, uh, for prenatal diagnosis, like my the first case that I had described, a patient who just wanted to know what will be the risk on her uh, future pregnancy, and offer her pre-implantation genetic diagnosis. Um, it's uh, quite expensive. Uh, is only there in a few selected centers in U U.S. Uh, as of now, um, and. Just making the point that I know that it always comes up that it's quite expensive, is it worth the cost? Um, this particular study looked at the uh, cost of the genetic testing all over US and they said that it was approximately 3,500. Um, and uh, there are some uh, pharmaceutical companies who might do it for cheaper and even for free. And Dr. Thomas can talk a little bit more about it at the end of the presentation. Uh, as compared to if they end up on ESRD and they need dialysis um, by up to 13 years and the cost can potentially be almost 70,000 annually. And we already know that's the cost of having someone on dialysis. So who to test? All the affected members of a family with X-linked outport, including females should be identified. Most mothers of affected males are also affected. Uh, because an affected mother would pass on the disease to her to her sons. And uh, at-risk family members should be screened for hematuria on at least two occasions and offered other screening tests. But genetic test is usually the test of choice if available. Um, and especially it's easier if a mutation has already been identified in the family. And other by other screening tests, I'm just saying that urine analysis to look for albuminuria, proteinuria. Um, at some uh, studies had suggested that uh, doing a skin biopsy can be useful, but it's um, again, uh, not 100% diagnostic and again, can have like a patchy distribution as we saw in the uh, glomerular basement membrane uh, from the lionization. Um, so how to test, uh, you can do a skin renal, like I said, a renal biopsy, a skin biopsy or a genetic testing. Uh, but none of the other two things are going to tell you anything about the type of mutation, where the mutations actually present, and if that particular mutation confers a worse prognosis for that particular female or not. So this is uh, what the Alport syndrome classification work group that published their newer or proposed their newer classification of Alport had suggested that uh, all females with X-linked Alport should be followed annually um, and with a urine albumin creatinine ratio, urine protein creatinine ratio. And if they have hematuria plus microalbuminuria, they should, you should consider starting ACE and ARB earlier uh, as soon as possible. Uh, some of the most recent data is actually suggesting that it should be started uh, the 
um, RAS block it is most beneficial if it started even before the onset of albuminuria or proteinuria. Although in that particular study that I'm quoting, uh, the results were not statistically significant. If the patient has hematuria or uh, overt proteinuria, then you basically do the same thing, start ACE and ARB and you titrate it up. And amongst all patients who are diagnosed with ALPORT, if you're, uh, they should be, uh, a genetic testing should be done and the outcome should be reported to a national or international registry. The University of Minnesota is the closest center to us that has a ALPORT registry going on so we can report it to them or some, some other uh, database. I believe Mayo Clinic has another database uh, that we can report to. And I see Maggie and Dr. Thomas both are here. So maybe they can talk a little bit about that. And, um, and if they have progressive protein you are despite ACE inhibitors, then you can start them on other agents like spironolactone, calcium channel blockers, diuretics to control the blood pressure, protein urea, uh, and uh, statin for cardiovascular risk factor modification. And, uh, basically just watch for upcoming therapies because as of now, there's no targeted management or therapy or treatment for Alport syndrome. So these are the clinical trials which are currently recruiting. Uh, one of the main one is the, um, the Ladimersin trial and the Bardoxalon trial, uh, which is uh, currently, and they have, I have on the next slide, the the criteria, uh, main eligibility criteria to enroll in both these trials. Uh, the Ladimersin is expected to be completed by June, 2023. And uh, what the, the molecular compound is basically uh, ASO, which is anti-sense oligonucleotides. Uh, it's a form of exon skipping therapy. Uh, it's given as a subcutaneous dose every week as compared to the bardoxalon, which is an oral phase three um, oral medication and is currently in phase three. Uh, what both these, uh, what, what the bardoxalon is trying to achieve, it, it, it's acting at the level of um, NRF2, which is a nuclear factor, erythroid uh, two related factor. Uh, it inhibits a nuclear factor kappa beta pathway, and it's supposed to basically reverse its antioxidant uh, protects the mitochondria as anti-inflammatory, which is basically the end result of all chronic kidney disease or the proposed uh, mechanism, how all the kidney diseases will cause uh, end-stage renal disease or renal failure. Uh, the ASO uh, is the exon skipping therapy. And uh, it's basically, uh, you give that to the patient and it's supposed to uh, cause it, it, it'll go there and cause like a, on, in the exon part and um, um, it's basically a genetic therapy. And these are the main eligibility criteria for a patient age 18 to 55, male or female, they have con confirmed outboard and their GFR has to be obviously greater than 35%. And if they have any of these criteria which will qualify them as rapidly declining or at risk of rapidly declining renal function. So what happened to the patient in case one? She actually underwent genetic testing. She was found to have a mutation in COL4A3, uh, which was a missense mutation, I believe. And it was re resulted, initially resulted as a variant of uncertain significance, but given her family history of Alport in her father and multiple other 
family members across generation, this was presumed to be pathogenic or cause of disease. Uh, her father, who back in the day was diagnosed with Alport on base, based on a kidney biopsy, underwent genetic testing a few weeks later after she was diagnosed. And the results of uh, that were, the father's genetic test results were still pending as of this morning. She was also found to have a mutation in CRB2, which was also read as variant of uncertain significance. And when I looked it up, it's known to be associated with autosomal recessive FSGS. So I do not know what to make out of this. She doesn't have any proteinuria as of now. She has high blood pressure and uh, she's been started on asinibutra, I believe. The other patient uh, who also had affected father at the age of 30s uh, basically ended up on dialysis at the age of 30 and has had two uh, kidney transplants till date. Um, she, was, she underwent genetic testing and she was found to be heterozygous for a pathogenic variant on call for a 5 So she indeed had X-linked Alport syndrome. Um, and then um, she was called in for a follow-up and um, she was told basically her prognosis of the disease and her blood pressure was still within the normal range and she was advised to check her blood pressure at home and follow up annually. So conclusion, these are my conclusions. Um, Alport remains underdiagnosed and misdiagnosed in, in women, particularly in women, because uh, they do not develop the classical phenotype until later in life. Uh, the the the, the classification working group has clearly said that avoid calling women carriers because it's misleading. What, a carrier, what the term carrier implies that it's a benign and a silent disease, which is not true as we have seen. Renal prognosis is unpredictable at an early age. So even though if they are not demonstrating any signs and symptoms of hematuria, proteinuria, they still need early follow-up, close follow-up. Consider doing genetic testing in all female relatives of affected male. And women with X-linked outboard should be strongly advised against kidney donation to their affected male relatives because their own, even if they have normal kidney function as of now, uh, because of their own risk of ESRD down the road. Um, we also have to keep in mind if there's a high suspicion, but there's no family history, we still have to keep the keep in mind the possibility of 15% of those cases who can still have a de novo mutation. And these are some patient and physician resources. You can, if the patient is diagnosed with Alport, there are various patient advocacy groups and organizations, support groups. There's Alport Syndrome Foundation, and there are Alport foundations for each of their own countries. And you should consider reporting data to. Alport Syndrome Treatments and Outcomes Registry, uh, which is the, the number one registry is the one that I was talking about. Uh, the closest center is University of Minnesota. Um, and then these are all the other uh, international Alport registries. So if you have to take home one line uh, message from this talk, then that would be that thin basement membrane nephropathy is no longer a clinically useful term. It should be discarded and the use should be avoided. It basically underestimates the risk of progressive kidney disease, particularly in females and depriving them of, uh, of a therapy, which is basically ACE and ARB earlier in life uh, to prevent or possibly uh, delay the progression of renal disease. And, and that is it. And special thanks to Dr. Thomas for uh, his 
comments with the presentation and uh, his case on the excellent outboard and today's Women's History Month. So, okay, that's it. That's all I have. Very nicely done, Minakshi. Um, sorry, I was not able to add those things on the donor. <laughs> no, no, no. The, you have enough. You had enough to present. You went over it at a nice pace. You left a little time for questions. You obviously can't cover everything that you want that you could do. So no, I think it's great, and you covered some important aspects of Alport's, especially in the X-linked uh, um, gene that um, is um, good for us to know. Clearly, looking at uh, the, the lens or the retina with a slit lamp or doing audiogram is not going to help pick up these cases. Um, a renal biopsy is an option, but um, one thing you didn't mention as to advantages of genetic testing, it is safe. Um, it, does, it avoids the morbidity of a uh, kidney biopsy, which is not trivial. Thank you. Other comments? I see, let me just escape this and look at the chat box. So based on the data on how many uh, cases of uh, outport were missing, uh, if we don't do genetic testing, uh, that means that everybody or most of everybody that uh, has uh, proteinuria and hematuria um, would be benefiting from genetic testing. Is that, uh, I guess, one of the conclusions that we're uh, getting from the fact that we're missing uh, about 30% of, or, uh, or uh, having a wrong diagnosis for about 30% of cases? I would say so, but I would also have Dr. Thomas comment on that because he sees a lot more patients than I do, so. So, you know, just to put it in context, that was a study of thousands of patients from a dialysis unit. They had no, um, you know, particular uh, reason to be enriched in genetic disease, and I believe 11% of that random sample of a dialysis population, which really came from a study of statins in dialysis patients, had a genetic variant sufficient to explain a genetic disease. And of those, 30% were uh, Alport gene disease genes, and of those, two-thirds had not had a prior diagnosis. So in terms of cost-benefit ratio, would, if you got an ultrasound on every patient that had hematuria and proteinuria, um, then I would ask you, why not get a genetic test? Um, um, it perhaps gives you as much of a yield in both these situations, except you don't question the ultrasound, but you do question the genetic test. Um, the second is that the cost of ultrasounds and the cost of interpretation of ultrasounds is only going up with time. The cost of genetic testing is falling every day. And as Mina said, uh, we can now get specific Alport gene testing for free. Um, it is that inexpensive to do. And actually, Dr. Thomas is working on an Alport study. He's looking at the cohort of autosomal dominant Alport. So if you have any Alport patient, please refer them to him. Um, and then I see that Lewis has asked two questions. For patient two, was her father's mutation not known? If it was, her dad was homozygous for an autosomal recessive mutation. Doesn't that define her as heterozygous for that mutation? So I know nothing about the father of patient number two. I will have either Maggie or Dr. Thomas talk on that. And then for patient two, again, Lewis has said that is an X-linked gene. 
dad would have to be hemizygous. I don't think he had genetic test and the clinical diagnosis was likely X-linked. Yeah, I would say so. Just given if you look at her family history, I can actually pull up her family history. So yeah, to follow up on Lewis's question, yes, the, um, the father had a clinical diagnosis of X-linked alport, but remember it's a clinical diagnosis and the child comes to you with hematuria, you're supposed to determine whether she has a kidney disease that could be um, uh, accounted for by dad's disease or is there something else? Um, and you know, in all these situations, we counsel the patient about the pros and cons of genetic testing. Did it need to be done? Well, the patient wanted it done. It gives us some certainty that the hematuria has a pretty defined uh, um, cause. So it's easy to justify making, doing a test which confirms or proves a, a diagnosis because it then eliminates all subsequent testing. You wouldn't have to, for example, have to send her to a urologist to do a cystoscopy because you've eliminated that as a likely cause. Plus we'll find out what type of mutation they have and that will be very useful. Christy, if I remember correctly, uh, the expression of, of the different uh, mutations that you see on Alport is quite variable. And so that leads to heterogeneity in uh, phenotypic expression. Uh, I, I guess maybe the only one that wasn't the case is the missense one, but otherwise you really cannot derive a lot of prognostic value from knowing what mutation somebody has. Is that correct? Well, I think it is fair to say that not every genetic variant that is identified in Alport uh, syndrome or in any suspected genetic disease rises to the level of certainty. And that's why we have grades of significance from benign, likely benign, variant of uncertain significance, likely pathogenic and pathogenic. And it has to be interpreted in the clinical context. So yes, if you don't actually have a genetic variant that meets laboratory criteria for pathogenic, we can't call it that. It doesn't mean it's not the cause, but then you have to use additional tools to determine whether it is possibly pathogenic. So segregation analysis is a simple clinical tool if additional affected members are available. So if you have an unaffected individual that carries the variant that you think is a VUS, it automatically gets downgraded to benign because you now have a person carrying the variant doesn't have the disease. So segregation in a single individual can help you eliminate it as a cause of disease. To confirm that it's a cause of disease, you have to do segregation in more than two affected uh, individuals. But again, the cost of doing family-based genetic variant testing is now so little, uh, and it provides useful information, not just for that one individual, but for, for the others as well, that it's, it's worth doing. Again, the counseling takes care of this. Um, it's available. It uh, provides more clarity uh, if the patient wants it and you're convinced that it offers some benefit, but not certainty, seems reasonable to do it. It's part of uh, one of our diagnostic uh, tests that is uh, available. And I was referring only to the pathogenic variants, uh, trying to establish a prognosis based on, uh, based on uh, what you identify. Yeah, so again, it will depend on which, ge which gene we're talking about. So in a, in a X-linked male where there's only one X chromosome that is present, um, the, the impact of a, of a uh, genetic variant is much easier to predict than in an autosomal dominant case where there are two copies of the, of the gene in question and only one has no function. Um, many, many 
um, autosomal dominant diseases um, do not occur because one copy of the gene is non-functional. You get disease because the abnormal copy of the gene takes on a second function. Either it's again a function where it has a new function or it's dominant negative where it inhibits the function of the other copy because loss of one half of your protein from two genes doesn't typically cause disease. That's why autosomal dominant doesn't usually occur from loss of function variants. But there are exceptions. There's exceptions for airports. There's exceptions for a number of other diseases. So it does, again, provide some clarity, but it isn't the end all, the be all, the gold standard or anything. It's in context, it is an extremely useful test. Thank you. If someone has a family history of Alport's and you do 